0: Politics seem more divided than ever. Can we save democracy through persuasion?
1: Hello, and welcome to Pullback, where we explore big new ideas and ask, is this a real solution or a distraction? Pullback is a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network of Progressive Canadian Podcasts. I'm Kyla Hewson, and I'm here with my co-host,
0: Kristen Pugh. On today's episode, we were joined by activist Robert Miller to talk about Anand Jirdardass' latest book, The Persuaders. Our discussion covered all kinds of topics, from whether political polarization is really a new problem to whether promising new strategies like deep canvassing can help to build solidarity.
1: If you enjoyed this conversation, please show your love with a five-star review or by getting your right-wing parents to listen to our show. (laughs) Let's get started. Robbie, welcome back. Welcome back.
2: Yeah, it's good to be back. Uh, always happy to be on the pod with y'all.
1: Today we're talking about The Persuaders, a book that Kristen recommended that has been actually, its I really liked it. I'm excited to talk about it with you guys.
2: Yeah, um, I actually really enjoyed reading this book, but uh, I'm going to preface that by saying, by doing a funny little callback to a previous react that we did. Um, because I found that this book actually had a really funny parallel with A Waste-Free World.
0: Yeah, that was a book we read by a Bloomberg fanboy slash guy that was in charge of waste management in New York City.
2: Yeah, and it was a terrible book. And one of the reasons why it was a terrible book was because it ended up feeling like a series of ads for Bloomberg investments. But as I was reading through The Persuaders, I was like, oh, this is just a series of ads for political consultants that uh, Anand Girat really likes
0: <laughs> I mean, I think it's like a little better than that, but he does quite clearly love AOC uh, not that I hated reading that whole section, but
1: <laughs> who among us, Kristen, who among us does not love AOC? I feel like <laughs> <True>. <laughs> that's that's a fair thing to to want to vamp up yeah she's pretty rad
2: it's true, and like this book was far more serious and good and in-depth. But I did, I was struck, I think, especially during like the Schenker Osario chapter that I was like, oh yeah, this really is just like a bunch of Beltline consulting firms um, getting like a little ad spot was something that I felt is possibly the like most uncharitable possible way to read this book.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think there was a lot of value in that chapter, but I mean, Anand Girdardass, like he was a McKinsey consultant, so he's guns to stand some consultants.
2: (laughs) Uh, That's some useful context. So did he ever fix bread prices?
0: Uh, I don't think so. Um, But he like he left McKinsey to write like a big book about billionaires dunking on billionaires. So that's like what made him famous. And so this is sort of like his second big book. I think it's much better personally. But that might just be because I was like, at the time, an academic studying philanthropy from a critical lens. So I was like, this stuff's all old news. Whereas I came into this a little bit more fresh and willing to be surprised. But anyway, going to stand some consultants. (laughs) It's inevitable.
2: I'm actually... That's actually a substantive question that I had for some of this, because I was rather surprised based on the fact that his previous work was about sort of like billionaires and the way that they've, the sort of like outsized influence that they have in American political life, how little that kind of featured in his analysis of American history. So it was kind of like on my list of things to do if I had read this book with more leeway and time would have been to pick that up and kind of cross-reference it, because I think probably the biggest weakness like serious weakness not my earlier joke about it being uh, an ad campaign for consulting firms was just that i i oftentimes felt like his understand like his portrayal of american history to me felt off in several places in terms of the way that this book is outlined and its major thesis about like how do we prevent the erosion and destruction of american democracy and kind of like bring back the art of persuasion um to me was kind of like a historical that you know, I don't. I think his views on what American democracy looked like 30 or 40 years ago are significantly rosier than the way that I look at them. For instance,
0: yeah, I mean, I I would say that this book. I'm not sure that it really lacks a class analysis because he does, in some sense, talk about like the need to focus more on improving people's lives in persuading people, but. I think you're right that that's not really the focus of the book uh, so much, but maybe we should get into just what is the focus of the book. Uh, So we usually, Robbie, this is your first time coming on our show in our new format, Um, and our new format's really focused on solutions, but we're going to flip things a little bit today and start with what the problem is. Um, and in The Persuaders, the problem that Gerardas uh, starts with is, is really this idea that democracy depends on, relies on a belief in persuasion, and that polarization in America and elsewhere is really leading to an erosion of that belief, um, what he calls the great write-off, this idea that everybody's got their their tribes that they can speak to, and you can't really have any any progress in changing people's minds. And so, you know, you almost shouldn't bother, you should just try to rally the base. So I guess my question for both of you just to start, like, do you think that's true?
2: Yeah, I kind of like already led into this. But one of the issues that I had with almost like the style of how he poses that question is that I just like, I don't think that persuasion has ever been a particularly powerful force in American democracy before. Like, reading uh, David Wengrow and Graber's book, The Dawn of Everything, one of the things that really jumps out is that early indigenous critiques of European colonizers had to do with the fact that persuasion just had absolutely no bearing whatsoever in in their political lives, that people were ruled by domination and wealth. And so, you know, none of these things ever really get incorporated. The American democratic experience, like, They didn't have universal suffrage until 1962. Uh, And then the Civil Rights Act was post, like created three years later, and immediately was once again, like fundamentally eroded by gerrymandering, the restriction of the franchise by um, felony charges, all these other ways that voter suppression has become the norm in American politics. Not to mention just the fact that like, if you look at political analysis of campaigns from the 19... all through the 1900s is what I'm mostly familiar with, so much of it falls along racial lines that you know I don't think there ever was a period where persuasion was really that potent within American politics, um, that American politics has always been defined by people with power ruling from above and rallying people around tribal allegiances. I think the better way to frame this question is more so how do we break out persuasion as a meaningful part of American life, possibly for the first time ever, that like so much of what we're seeing in terms of this like great write-off is not trying to like revive American persuasion, but you have a right-wing conservative political environment that is trying to like safeguard that kind of tribal allegiance that is trying to prevent people of color, women sexual minorities from being included in the national conversation at all, functionally, compared with people who are trying to build power in communities for the first time. And I think there's little like sprinklings of that throughout the book. Like one of the things that really jumps out at me from AOC's campaign that uh, highlighted that was when she was talking to voters and saying that it's like, this is not about voting for me instead of Crowley. Rather, it's voting in a primary for the first time of your life. You matter, you have taught Uh, and accepted in so many ways, conscious and subconscious, that we don't matter, our lives don't matter, our input doesn't matter, our opinion doesn't matter. And so we're just going to try to survive. We can't live like this anymore. We deserve better. And you matter. And because you matter, you not turning out decides this election. You're making a choice. I want you to know that you matter to me. That was a quote from AOC within the book. And to me, like that kind of stuff really highlights that, yeah, maybe we're actually doing this for the first time.
1: I don't know maybe I read the book differently than you did Robbie but I didn't get the sense that uh, the author was saying that we needed to go back to persuasion I I didn't read that at all I was reading very much that um he was talking about doing this for the first time so that's that's a weird thing that we have completely
0: <laughs> I mean I I do think it's fair like whether or not he thinks America has ever done this perfectly I think there's like space for debate on that but like I think it's very clear in his perspective of democracy that it is this sense that it really only works when there's persuasion. So I think it's, it's this idea of trying to bring American democracy and democracy around the world to this ideal that is really the only way this system of government works, <laughs> you
2: know? <laughs> yeah. And to be fair, a lot of my reading of like that thesis comes from the style that he presents it with. Like He refers frequently to the erosion of democracy. Even um, when Kristen was introducing the problem that the book poses, like, I think a lot of it comes back to this idea that you know we had a vaguely democratic system and we are sliding into something that is not democratic. And what I like to highlight is just that like, maybe we didn't have such a great, well-functioning democracy before either. And actually what we're experiencing right now is tremendous upheaval, but we shouldn't be viewing it as erosion from a height but rather as like a attempt to actually construct something new out of what we should look back on as like pretty dire circumstances in the past as well.
0: Yeah, but like you can have erosion from a low place too, right? <laughs> Those two things can both be true at the same time.
1: Yeah, I mean he has a whole chapter on QAnon that's just like, "Oh yeah, that's getting pretty bad." <laughs> like 14% of Americans believe in QAnon now. Like, well it's like what did they say 43 million people? I'm like, "Holy shit."
2: <laughs> but like even with QAnon, like when I was reading that chapter, I was thinking back to the Dreyfus affair in like 1800s France where you had an even larger segment of the population that believed a completely baseless Jewish, like, anti-Semitic conspiracy. These things have happened before. <laughs> the, the, the prevalence of QAnon is not particularly new.
1: I suppose the biggest difference then is the, the Internet now and the way that that has kind of changed the political landscape from the way that it was in the past.
2: Even with that, like, again, I think back to the Dreyfus affair and somehow this managed to like completely ensorcel all of like French political life for several years. I think the internet accelerates the speed at which things happen, but it's not as though people lived completely independently from one another, you know, even 100, 200, 300 years ago. Like conspiracy theories and these like vile anti-Semitic rumors have still been able to propagate incredibly widely and to devastating consequences in the past as well.
0: Also, just to go back to one of our previous reacts where we uh, read that Cory Doctorow book. I can't remember what it's called, but it was the one on surveillance capitalism. <laughs> um, like, in theory, access to the Internet should increase our ability to get information. It should make it more difficult to suffer from these mass like delusions like QAnon. So I think there's got to be something else at, at the root. If it is even true that we are more polarized than we were before, which personally, I, I'm inclined to say we are, but Robbie, you seem like you aren't necessarily on side with that.
2: <laughs> yeah. I mean, this comes back to something that happens every time I'm on the episodes, which is that like I think polarization is good, actually, uh, and that most of the problem that we're encountering, and I actually like this as kind of a theme that runs through the book, is how much our political landscape is like actually really information poor. Like the entire deep canvassing chapter is all about the fact that, you know, moderates quote unquote, don't really exist. Most people go around without a really strong ideological understanding of the world. They are mostly confused and in conflict with themselves over their own political beliefs. Um, I think that people like, us who are like relatively ideologically coherent are like a wild minority within the world. And I think actually the world would probably be a better place if more people had that same kind of ideological framework. Obviously I would dramatically prefer it if they had my ideological framework. (laughs) (laughs) But again, like I think polarization in that context is quite good. And that's based on my experience within organizing and activism as well, that like, campaigns like 350 and the Sunrise Movement were built on uh, momentum organizing, which is all about using polarization to kind of create an actual movement around your ideas and get people out of that mushy middle of confusion and force them to pick a side, hopefully your side.
1: I have a quote from the book that I think sums up what you're saying. And it's one of my favorite quotes in the book. So if you guys don't mind, I'm just going to read it real quick. One way to think of this is that if I offer you a choice between a pizza and a burger and you can't pick, you're an undecided voter. It doesn't follow that you want a pizza burger. Maybe you want a pizza burger. (laughs) The mathematical midpoint between a pizza and a burger. More likely, you will ultimately resolve the dilemma and go with a pizza or a burger. That might help us to reconceive your moderate stance at the beginning as a temporary state, a situation, not an identity.
2: Yeah, I actually have that exact same quote in my notes as well. Because much as at the beginning, I joked about how during Shanger Rosario's chapter, I was like, Oh, this is an ad for a consulting firm. I was like, I'm also 100% sold on this consulting firm. Like, she's great.
0: <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> yeah, it was a really great chapter. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, and it maybe gets to another layer of the problem that I wanted to talk about. So The book's, like, Raise on Debt starts with this discussion of polarization and democracy and, like, the importance of persuasion in achieving progress, right? And I think that the pizza burger quote, Kyla, really ties in the central idea of the book, which is, like, you can ignore more or less, not completely, but you can more or less ignore the extreme 20% on either side of the political spectrum. And it's the 60% of the people in the middle who are conflicted, who, you know, depending on what sort of frames and facts they're confronted with could really change their mind on an issue. Those are the people that could really be persuaded. And he wants people to really commit to that idea. And and that's like framed within this context of a critique of the left. And I really wanted to like bring that forward to you guys and see whether that's something you agree with. Like, do you think it's true that the left has like a problem of? accessibility, that it's really only speaking to a small base. And I mean, he argues that it sort of, the left oftentimes pretends to be inclusive, but the like purity tests and ultra-wokeness can actually make it really hard for people to be called into the movement. Is that something you agree with? Oh, yeah.
1: 100%. Like it's exactly like you, what you said. We we have a space that is supposed to be welcoming, but then our call out culture is just as toxic as the rights is a lot of the time, and it's not great. <laughs> it's not great. Like it's that's what the whole chapter with AOC was about was like her ability to straddle that line of calling out while also not alienating your base, and. What is really interesting about the way that Trump won was that he didn't ignore the 20 percent that are really radicalized on the right. He 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 catered to them and it it really worked for him. So, like, <laughs> Robbie will probably have a better idea of this as he works more in these spaces. But like my impression is that. People are uncomfortable being in spaces where they haven't completely learned the language yet. And, they, th- and he talks about this in the book, where people, you know, they'll, they'll show up, they mean well, they haven't completely learned everything yet, and as soon as they say something wrong, they get pounced on instead of informed.
2: Yeah. One of my challenges with Anand's diagnosis is that, like, I don't think he is a leftist. It feels to me a lot like outside criticism. I mean, like someone who worked at McKinsey is probably not someone that I consider an ideological ally. But I think even, Kristen, in the way that you framed the question, there's a little bit of a, a distinction that's important to remember from like the Bernie and AOC chapters, which is that you can't ignore the 20% base because they are the ones who are actually going to be doing most of the persuading for you. Like One of the things that I really appreciated in the book was them pointing out that the most reliable way that you create momentum around a campaign is not to have the candidate try to reach out to the 60%. It's to create a really energized base that is going to be doing that ambassadorship work for you constantly in their daily lives, reaching out to the people that are around them and equipping them with the tools that they need to help make meaning in people's lives. So yeah, just like to clarify that it's like, we shouldn't be ignoring anyone. I think ignoring the 20% on the other side of the spectrum, 100%.
0: Yeah, but you don't need... I think the point... Sorry, the point I was trying to make was more that you shouldn't expend a lot of energy trying to convince the people in that that already mostly agree with you to 100% agree with you. You should be more focused on the people that like are in the middle in terms of persuasion. But yeah, point taken on engagement, for sure.
2: <laughs> yeah, in terms of the like accessibility of the left... I think one of the reasons why I don't necessarily agree with that is just cuz like I've seen it happen and a lot more of the reasons why it's difficult to get people involved in leftist organizing is also just because it's like we aren't well resourced that like you are fighting against a lot of very material concerns and difficulties in people's lives. You're also usually when you're organizing people who are deeply marginalized Um, Also just like running up against the reality that people are fighting for their survival and it can be quite difficult to get them to take risks under those situations. Uh, I think there are a lot of barriers beyond just the academic jargony stuff, though that definitely exists. And it's the same thing with call-out culture. I think one of the things that I noted at several points in the book was that it kind of almost feels, going back to Shankar Rosario's chapter, that this is a conversational terrain that is really like built around right wing talking points. That it's like it feels like we are caving into a conversation that they are defining around what call out culture is. Because a lot of my experience with call out culture has less about it being like a deliberate strategy as much as just that people don't have very good conflict resolution skills. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> that, like, one of One of the major challenges in leftist spaces is not what I would call call call-out culture. It is that we have grown up in a society that does not teach you how to resolve conflict in a way that is productive. Most conflict is resolved in very like zero-sum, win-loss terms. You are competing over scarce resources. You are fighting for space in hierarchy. You are trying to survive against people who are trying to take that survival away from you. There are very few realms where we get to interact with other human beings and have generative conflict, which means that when we do come into conflict with people that we're organizing with, or people that we're trying to bring in, we just don't have good tools to get through it and get around it. So I think that's sort of my experience of left-wing organizing is less that there's a problem with call culture, more that there's a problem with conflict resolution. And that's kind of something that does come up in the book. It comes up in terms of deep canvassing, in terms of creating space where people can like just say what they need to, and we can work with that and see how we move it. I think it was in um, Ross's chapter near the beginning as well, where she's discussing the Weather Underground's self-criticism, criticism, unity framework.
0: Can you just, uh, for somebody that hasn't read the book, can you maybe say a little bit about who Loretta Ross is, and just to contextualize it?
1: So just to introduce Loretta Ross in the in the book her her first little paragraph says Ross who is now in her late 60s and a pioneering activist a theorist in the black radical feminist tradition and co-creator of the theory of reproductive justice was at the time working at the DC Rape Crisis Center in Washington. And that just is kind of like the work she was doing and the chapter that that she's in kind of talks about her work with the the rape center and she she gets a letter from she gets a letter that kind of prompts a question, which is like, you could bandage women up all you want to, but if you don't stop men from raping, what's the point? Better bandages. And so, I think now, Robbie, if you wanted to talk about what you thought of her chapter, we have a better context of like the work she was doing.
2: Yeah, the context for Loretta Ross's chapter, from what I was taking away in terms of callouts and conflict resolution, was the self-criticism, and criticism, unity framework that was used by the Weather Underground and this ended up kind of being a footnote for me being like oh this is something that i need to look into more because even from her short description in terms of how that framework works that if you are in conflict with someone in an organizing space you start out with a little bit of like reflection on how you might have contributed to the problem how like your actions might have like been involved in allowing it to per- like continue then providing the criticism of somebody else's actions and then also creating that space afterwards for finding unity and you know finding a place of common ground that you can come back to and continue organizing together with. And it's like, it's that kind of stuff that I was like, Oh, this would actually be really useful in terms of what we can bring into organizing spaces. Cause I think a lot of the sort of persuasion stuff that Anand talks about is very good for like when you are reaching out, but I found Loretta Ross's chapter really useful for like how you actually run your own organization's, how you keep the 20% of your own supporters from like being constantly at each other's throats, more the damaging part of call call out culture, such as it's described. Funny enough, I was, when I was reading through that section, I was thinking back, because this is a, a problem that's going on constantly. And I think about it all the time, but I was like, oh man, weirdly enough, the equity framework that debate used has probably been one of the most like functional conflict resolution mechanisms that I have experienced which uh, is kind of grim, (laughs) but also uh, very funny. And one of the reasons why that really jumped out at me, though, was that one of the reasons why equity kind of worked within the debate framework is that it wasn't just there for dealing with like when a big fucking deal happened. There was also a lot of times that equity was used as a framework for just navigating social rules as kind of like a container building exercise that we were constantly engaged in.
0: Yeah, a bunch of... Like, very uh, conflict-prone people with not very good social skills. Uh, Equity is a very important policy. (laughs) Yeah,
2: but, like, then you go out into the rest of the world and you find that a lot of people are very conflict-prone and have terrible social skills. That's true. (laughs) And it it emphasized to me that, like, I think one of the other things that sort of so-called call-out culture gets wrong is that it doesn't really have a mechanism for dealing with the small stuff that it really is a kind of positive feedback loop for turning very small stuff into very big stuff um, because it doesn't really have a conception of that sort of unity at the end of it. How do we come back together and continue to work as a group, as a community and stuff like that? And so when we start thinking about like, oh, how do we deal with like very minor interpersonal problems? How do we create frameworks that allow us to talk to each other about them Uh, And then we use those small kind of opportunities to build up skills around conflict resolution. So that when something big happens, not only do we maybe have a more robust framework and yada, 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 but we also just, you know, as a community have better skills for dealing with it. And even when we're talking about deep canvassing, I think it's actually very funny to think about it as you are going into somebody's community and you are trying to give them skills. Like that's part of deep canvassing is trying to like, help people build up a bit of a muscle around self-reflection and thinking about how these big political issues that they're dealing with are like parts of their daily lives or helping them contextualize experiences that they've had in the past. Those are political skills that we're not really taught very often, that we don't usually get to exercise um, in our, like, you know, going to a ballot box and voting doesn't help you exercise those political skills. Those are skills that you have to learn interpersonally in communication with others. It was interesting to kind of like see that link of, oh yeah, deep canvassing is partly about helping shape people's minds, but in a less sinister way is just recognizing that a lot of people are politically unskilled, socially unskilled by no fault of their own. And part of your activism has to be not just doing the political education, but also doing the sort of like social education and political education within the context of, like, how do we interact with other human beings, not just political education in the, like, poli-sci and history context that it's used.
1: So a really good example of that, I think, in the book, especially on in the deep canvassing chapter. So basically, deep canvassing is just asking people questions until they change their own minds. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's, it's pretty great. Um, but a really good example is when the deep canvasser was asking somebody, how do you feel about trans rights? And they were like, oh, I I don't mind. I'm open-minded, but I don't think it should be around our children. And the person ended up changing their mind by being like, well, do you know any trans people? And, you know, the person at the door was like, oh yeah, actually my niece was a male to female trans person. And now we don't speak anymore because I guess they think I'm not okay with it, but I am. And then the more they asked questions, the more the person realized how shitty they had been to their niece (laughs) and and the more embarrassed they were, the hard it's hard. It's hard to come up against the fact that you might have been wrong and in such a way that like deeply hurt somebody you loved. And so the patience of just asking people questions unjudgmentally until they realize like, oh, I fucked up. And then at the end, they're like, okay, well, how do you feel about this trans bill now? And they're like, oh my God, I've completely changed my
0: mind. Yeah. I thought that was a really powerful example as well. Um, and I'll maybe, I'll maybe just explain, cause I looked up deep canvassing so that I could provide like a bit of a, a longer description of what it is in case somebody's never heard of it before. You don't uh, think my <laughs> description was good enough, Kristen? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it was like a great summary. I think that example is a perfect example, but, um, uh, just to like elaborate on it a little bit more. For somebody that hasn't done canvassing before, traditional canvassing is usually very short. Um, You usually like canvassers go to the door, they have a script, they're supposed to hit like a couple of key points. The aim is to like do it in under five minutes so you can hit as many houses as possible. Deep canvassing is really a different approach to the same activity of sort of going door to door on an issue, right? So rather than like that quick conversation where you're delivering a message, it's a longer like 10 to 20 minute conversation where you're learning what matters to people in a two-way conversation. Um, And it plays on four different techniques. Uh, So the first one is self-persuasion. And I think, Kyla, your example, like really perfectly highlights that, right? So the canvasser themselves doesn't really play the role in trying to persuade the person. They're more sort of asking questions and showing empathy, but um, they're instead sort of putting the person they're talking to in a position where they're persuading themselves. Right. So in that case, it was somebody talking about trans rights. Uh, The book also gives a couple of examples of people's views in relation to immigration. You know, there's all kinds of issues you could do that on, but, but the role is really to have, have people, self-persuade themselves. (laughs) The second technique is called active processing. Essentially, the person you're talking to is prompted to think about their own experience. They're asked to generate thoughts on it, um, to reorganize and to self-explain. And so you're basically asking people why they believe what they believe um, and to tie threads between their experiences together. So they're processing information that they already have about themselves, but in, in real time, they're drawing those linkages around an issue.
1: Which I think really sums up like what Robbie was saying, right? About people not having had practice discussing these issues. And so, you know how the inside of your brain can just be this echo chamber and you think you know what you know, and then you say something out loud and you're like, wait a second, that sounds really dumb as soon as I say it out loud. And it's just giving people the space to sound dumb saying their shit out loud and realizing like, "Oh, maybe I actually don't know anything about this issue.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think a really good example of that is some of the conversations around immigration that were discussed in the book, because like uh, the book recounts several people who are initially asked, do you know any immigrants? <laughs> and they say no. And then like two minutes into the conversation, it's like, oh, wait, my colleague Bob's an immigrant. My, my brother brother-in-law is an illegal immigrant. <laughs> my <laughs> brother-in-law, Yeah. <laughs> So just it, yeah, having people sort of reframe things that they think they already have a well-formed view on, but maybe it's it's not a very deep perspective. The third skill that deep canvassing really deals with is called perspective taking, and here's where the canvasser actually will share a little bit about themselves. So the canvasser will share their own perspective on the issue. They'll do it in a really non-judgmental way because they're trying not to get people to sort of double down on their beliefs or go into defense mode. Um, but they might share like an experience they've had in their life or something like that. Particularly if their personal experience is is linked to the issue they're they're trying to talk about. Um, and the aim there is to prompt the voter to ponder and to consider alternative perspectives. And then the last skill is cognitive dis- dissonance, um, where I suppose it's not so much a skill as it's a thing that deep canvassing plays on. Essentially, it's trying to point out in a non-judgmental way through this conversation to help people to realize when their beliefs and actions actually are in contradiction to each other or when they're not in agreement. Um, And that sort of is the basis where people might be willing to change their beliefs. If they think, you know, I'm a person who has these values, um, but then through the conversation, they can maybe see that their actions don't match that or that like their values would be in line with this position that they didn't want to take at first. So I think it's a really cool technique.
1: <laughs> yeah, actually, it it resulted in a really neat shift in a small town in BC, uh, Trail, which is where I was born, weirdly. It's like a heavy industry town, and uh, a climate activism group did some deep canvassing there. And it's a town that is very much... <laughs> in love with the industry that they have and very very suspicious of the government and doesn't trust like they the last thing they want is more government overreach and yet the climate activist group like after doing some deep canvassing like hardcore deep canvassing they got the town to vote on a 100% renewable energy transition by 2050 which before the canvassing mo- movement was like not something that anyone was going to do. But they spent time with everybody and was were like, oh, do you like trees? Do you like fishing? Do you like going outside? And the people were like, oh, hmm, I do. And they were like, do you remember going outside before the like mine or whatever they have up there <laughs> like opened up? And they were like, oh, yeah, it is kind of dirtier now. And just like, it takes a lot longer, but the success that you can get is so much deeper.
2: The the deep canvassing for environmental issues is also coming to Alberta. And it was interesting reading this book because I'm on the board of an organization that's been doing some deep canvassing down in Calgary. So this was a nice kind of little insight into you know what we're doing on the ground. And it was really nice to be like, okay, yes, I should have complete confidence in this. Seems like it'll be a really interesting and fun program.
1: Well, I think it's something that like the right can't really utilize the same way that the left can. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I mean, I guess you could, but it just sometimes saying things out loud when you have the perspective of like a far right activist, even if you're trying to make it approachable, it sounds shitty to most people. <laughs>
2: like, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> there is, I think, a bit of a danger in terms of the way that the tactic is like can be used for because I mean, all you would need to do is just flip the script in terms of like, when were you afraid of something? When was when were you hurt by something? And you can tap into a lot of the same emotions and meaning making. Um, And I think it is worth recognizing that like anything that gets people more politically engaged, has the potential to like, go the other way if it turns out that actually their priorities are different than what you would want them to be.
0: I do think there's something that's inherently helpful for the left about deep canvassing more so than the right, just in the fact that you have this this conflict uh, with social policies, right, that in the abstract, people are much less progressive. They want much less um, in terms—they want, like, more longer punishments, a less sort of, like, generous welfare state, things like that in the abstract— but then if you sit somebody down and put them in real situations, they don't want to give people the maximum punishments. They want punishments to be way less than they usually are. They, When you sit people down in a panel and ask them what sort of like a reasonable welfare rate is, it's way higher than what the welfare rates are in reality. So I think one thing that deep canvassing really plays on is this like situational empathy. So reminding people that it's not these abstract systems. There are real faces and stories, and not just faces and stories that exist, but but that either are right in front of you in terms of the, the canvasser and like having a meaningful conversation with you, or are actually you know people's experiences in your lives that you connect with and love, and and that's something I think that does inherently bring out that compassion instinct uh, more so than the fear instinct. You know, if the fear instinct is easier to activate in a TV ad, I think.
2: Yeah, and I think that's really one of the reasons why I wouldn't be terribly concerned about like a right-wing attempt to co-opt deep canvassing, because as I mentioned at the beginning when I was talking about what I think the limitations of this book are, is that like the right doesn't need mass democratic participation. In fact, they actually want to prevent it as much as possible. Like They want to have a society that is purely based on like aristocratic domination and rule of violence and force, Because that favors the minoritarian rule that benefits them the most. So yeah, I I don't think it's necessarily a super relevant concern, but it is one of those things that like I see a lot in Edmonton as we're dealing with the housing crisis. That one of the most effective ways that people have been radicalized to treat the homeless as subhumans is like you know small business owners being empathetic about their like you know my staff being assaulted and like the hardships of running a business downtown because of, you know, vagrants and blah, body blah, 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 blah. Like there are ways that people tap into that empathy of fear and division. This goes back to, I think I've actually mentioned this example a bunch of times on the podcast, but I really love it, is like Alan Johnson's Monopoly lecture. One of the things that he points out is that like we human beings have a wide repertoire of possible emotions and reactions to things going on around them and which reactions they choose Are largely defined by the rules of institutions that surround them, Uh, and so just like when you're playing the board game Monopoly, the human experience of greed is the one that is like actively encouraged by the rules. If you're not greedy, you're punished. If you are greedy, you are rewarded. The same thing happens with so many other things around us in society at bigger levels. And so, you know, there are definitely ways that fear and like the desire for power also end up impacting people's lives. So,
0: and I also think like even, so I came away from the book thinking deep canvassing sounds incredible. We should definitely be doing it. But even more so on the particular issue of climate change, it seems like the thing that should be happening right now, because we have a problem that is inherently tied to that issue of people not being able to wrap their heads around the real connections in their lives to these abstract climate policies that people are putting forward. Right. The two things, the two top things that limit people from being supportive of main climate policies. Um, number one, the perception that they will be hurt by the policy, uh, which, you know, in some cases is, is true. And we can maybe talk about like neoliberal climate policies' a limitation. Um, but you know, even in a lot of cases, it's it's not true. Like um, most people get more back from the Canadian carbon tax system anyway than than they pay in. But the second thing is is this idea that like it fundamentally benefits a, like a small group of elites at the expense of the rest of the populace. And like we can also like have conversations with people to see how that's not true. At the same time, as as sort of really grounding for people the many ways that our lives are already being harmed by the climate crisis. So it really seems like an issue that in particular suffers from that lack of understanding or a lack of being able to sort of fit our regular life experiences into these political frames. And and so I think deep canvassing is really ripe for change in on the climate issue.
2: <laughs> and like one of the things, again, like when I talk about Skills and political skills. It's even one of those things where it's what does climate change need? It needs a like big movement of politically literate people who have the skills needed to like combat these massive problems we're having. It was also interesting in terms of the way that we can the climate change needs those kind of like villains uh, was a really interesting parallel as well. With I think it was still again Shankar Rosario's chapter, which I keep on going back to as just like. Uh, really good chapter on just like how to do messaging. It's actually, it was one of these things as I was reading the book, cause Alberta is coming up on a provincial election in May. And I just want to like buy this book for Rachel Notley and every NDP staffer and just be like, Hey, could you please run an effective campaign? Holy shit. <laughs> and yeah, I loved her like shit sandwich kind of approach to how things are going. So it was actually kind of funny when you were saying that, you know, we've been starting with talking about the the solution and then we get into the problem. Uh, and then in that chapter, one of the things she points out is no, you should start with the problem. That should be the first thing. Try to identify something in everybody's lives that is being affected by this issue, call people up to some sort of like more noble pursuit. So that's the layer of bread. And then you, you know, find a villain and you, you know, add that villain into your pitch. That's the middle of the shit sandwich. And then you end it talking about your solution and starting on that message of hope. And the way that her sort of message crafting always relied on this formula because it found that it sort of really energized the base. It helped to persuade people who were unpersuaded. And critically, it also ended up kind of pushing away people who were, you know, fierce opposition, which is kind of what you want a message to do. So- I really enjoyed this sort of like little meta thing that happened in this episode that we're like, oh yeah, we're going to take advice from the, the people in this book.
1: I also really liked that that whole chapter. It was it was so good. And I really liked the way that she said basically that the left has been focusing on the problems. Like we're all, we're so, the, the messaging is so negative, 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 negative. And it's like, <laughs> which which is true? And they're like, here's a list of all the problems. I feel called out right now, <laughs> Kyla. <laughs> I mean, that was the basis for our show, and now we are changing it. So, but it, it, it's it's more of a political thing, I would say, where it's like. Everyone knows the world is fucked, right? Like, that's not news. And so what people really need is a vision of how you, Mr. Politics, are going to make their lives better. And just saying, like, this is shitty and the current government's not doing anything about it isn't the same as saying this is shitty and wouldn't it be great if we had a universal basic income that solved this problem or whatever the solution is.
0: You know what I mean? Hmm. Yeah, it needs to offer sort of like a positive vision for the future. Which I mean, without going too much into specifics, uh, maybe previous Alberta elections, certain parties have had that problem <laughs> of, of not offering a positive vision and just complaining.
1: <laughs> I think that's a huge problem for a lot of politicians on both sides of the bench. But I think, I think something that you know that this book really points to is the fact that the right well, and Robbie even said this earlier, draws their power from fear and from division. And in order to combat that, the left needs to build a unifying image of what it looks like if we all work together. Like, what does that world look like?
2: (laughs) Yeah. And like, it's interesting too, because that whole chapter was one that I kind of spent like screaming at the Alberta NDP There's a line from Schenker Rosario, you are never going to win on someone else's conversational terrain. Once you're talking about law and order, playing catch up really on law and order, you will inevitably be an also ran on the subject and no one wants the B minus version. And if you take law and order and switch it out for oil and fossil fuels, uh, you have the Alberta NDP's entire strategy in a nutshell. Like reading this chapter was so validating for all of the time that I have spent trying to... Talk to NDP apparatchiks and move the Alberta NDP through activism that I've been doing, and I don't know. I, there's so many like highlight moments from her chapter. I think because she did get her start as a stand-up comedian before she got into political messaging, so she was also just like very funny. She was the origin, of course, of the pizza burger quote that Kyla brought up earlier in the pod. There's there was also a, a great moment where she's talking to a union in Australia that won huge, a huge victory with a campaign about like, workers rights. And they had a big slogan that worked really well for them. They were, you know, starting up a new campaign on some different issue. And they're like, well, we don't want to call it the same thing. And Shankar Rosario intervenes. What is it about winning that is so distasteful to you?
1: (laughs) I love that. I (laughs) underlined that too. (laughs)
2: It's again, one of those things that I really highlight about like, you know, how did the NDP win in 2015, aside from the, you know, progressive conservative collapse, was that they created this actual vision of change that appealed to people. And then once they got into power, they started doing something that Shankara Osario critiques constantly throughout her chapter, which is that they started negotiating against themselves before they even brought the policy forward. We're like, oh, well, this doesn't play well, so we'll water it down before they even like start trying to propose it. You see the Democrats doing the exact same thing in the United States, um, the Labour Party in the UK doing the exact same thing as well. And so it's really like uh, there's so many, there's just like this urge to lose that I find so frustrating.
0: <laughs> it's like the, uh, the the error of thinking that incrementalism or like compromise will be a successful strategy when really all it does is shifts the political frame of debate in the direction of the people that you're contesting against. And, and I found, found that that was really resonant, resonant for me because one of the, the narratives you hear all the time on climate change is like, well, we have to take a reasonable, incremental, middle ground approach, even though that's not what the science is saying. <laughs> That's not what our reality is, um, but because it's politically feasible. But actually, like after two decades of that strategy, all we've managed to do is shift the frame so far to the right that like the the solutions that were right wing solutions to climate change in the 80s are now unpalatable to that side of the spectrum and are viewed as progressive policies. I, I really think that she's hitting on a lot of really good points, including this idea that like we need to stop playing the game of the other side and really keep speaking for the issues that that matter to us um, and that matter in real people's lives. And I think
1: that the chapter on AOC really drove home the fact that, like, finally, we have a politician who, yes, has to compromise sometimes because the system is so broken that there's no way to play it otherwise. But you also have someone here who is really refusing to play by the rules the way that they've been laid out. And it's resonating with people. Oh, my God, surprise, right? Like-
2: <laughs> this goes back to that sort of like, how do you deal with your base versus how do you deal with the persuadables? When she was talking, yes, you are preaching to the choir, but if the choir isn't in harmony, the congregation does not hear the joyful
0: noise. Yeah, that was a great quote.
2: <laughs> yeah, I love that. It was also very funny that she couches that as like, you know, as a Jew who does not go to church, obviously, like, you know, let me make this little metaphor. It's like, oh, God, you're so good.
1: Oh, I have I have one last quote from her about like the pizza, the pizza burger. Oh, it's just it's so good. Democrats were like pizza sellers worried about growing the business who pivot to pizza burgers to woo burger lovers and end up alienating their existing customers while gaining few new ones. That's literally
0: (laughs) what Pizza Pizza is doing here in Ontario, by the way.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And like, we're seeing that right now in the Alberta context as well, that like Rachel Notley is trying so hard to convince like disgruntled conservatives to abandon Danielle Smith and switch to the NDP. And all of the polling that we're getting over the last two months is demonstrating that that's just not going to happen. And it's just so frustrating because for me, I look at the Alberta election and 35% of the population did not vote which means that if you can bring even like 5% of those people to start, you know, actually voting for the first time, again, going back to that fantastic AOC quote that I kind of started out with about what matters and like getting people to acknowledge that they matter within these systems and that their life is worth fighting for, you know, you could swing the Alberta election like quite durably. But instead, there is a, a political consensus that no, what we need to do is try to persuade only the people who are already voting who are on the margins of an existing party. And it's just like, no, stop.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and I I, I really took, I think my big takeaway from the book is that you should be authentic, which I think is something that, People are kind of starting to realize in a lot of different ways and a lot of different aspects now where and it's not like not just in politics, but, you know, in your job and in your, you know, real life. And even if even if you're an online person and you're always on social media, like authenticity is working. And so if you can be authentic, your main base will love you for it. And they'll they'll cheerlead you to victory. You know, like that's what happened with Trump.
2: Yeah, it's. Uh, it, I think there was there was also a very funny moment during the Shankar Rosario chapter where I was just like, "Has she written a book? Can I just read that?" <laughs> <laughs> there was a bit of like a whiplash for me when we're talking about like being authentic and like dealing with the issues when we actually when the book gets to the sort of de radicalization and cult chapter.
0: Oh yes, let's talk about the cults.
2: Yeah, let's talk about the cults. So. This chapter focuses on two different sort of people who are doing this work, two different consulting firms. (laughs) One of them deals with sort of helping people escape from religious cults like the Moonies. uh, And then the other one is talking about sort of de-radicalizing QAnon members. And one of the things that I found really frustrating with this entire chapter was like going back to my conversation about the Dreyfus affair earlier in the pod.
0: Can I be really honest here, Robbie? The Dreyfus Affair is one of those things that I saw in textbooks in undergrad, never learned what it was.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fantastic. Um, Yeah, I should probably actually explain what it was, because it has a lot of overlaps uh, with like the current moment. So the idea behind the Dreyfus Affair was that a French officer was basically falsely framed with sort of giving away state secrets, sabotaging a military campaign. Um, The officer was Jewish. And so his Jewishness sort of like becomes the central drama and his individual treason is then brought into this like broader conversation that's happening in Europe at the time about sort of like how nation states deal with people who are not of that sort of like ethnic, not of that ethnicity. And so there's a huge conspiracy. It ends up being used as justification for uh, discrimination against Jews in France and all across Europe. And it becomes like a sort of a central political drama for several years.
0: It was like France's lower stakes 9-11, basically.
2: Uh, more of France's higher stakes pizza games. <laughs> 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 um, because again, like I, I can't remember how, like the military defeat was something, again, like unlike 9-11 where it was a direct attack, like it was a military defeat in some campaign or another that ended up getting blamed on this Jewish officer's treason. I'm not quite sure that there's really a strong parallel in America, except that it's kind of like, you know, a individual problem gets blown out of proportion and becomes this sort of like massive conspiracy theory that, again, the reason why it has a lot of similarities for me is that it spreads like wildfire. It completely consumes political discourse for several years and is completely baseless. Again, just like QAnon. And, you know, QAnon obviously has a lot of anti-Semitic tropes. It is basically blood libel, uh, which was the old idea that uh, Jewish communities would abduct Christian children to drink their blood and use it in rituals, uh, which is basically identical to the QAnon accusation that there is a cabal of Jews kidnapping children for adrenochrome so that they can live forever. Uh, <laughs> just so stupid. But yeah, so one of the things that like being a little bit versed in sort of like conspiracy theories from 100 years ago really highlights me when I talk about conspiracy theories in the modern world is that like when we ascribe the popularity of conspiracy theories to a lack of media literacy or uh, a lack of good messaging or something like that, it ignores the fact that it's like, again, we've never had these skills. And that maybe it actually hints to something a little bit deeper, because when I have my own experiences of joining cults, because I joined a satanic cult when I was 13 over the internet, Uh, it still exists, actually. Uh, You can go to thejoyofsatan.com and it is completely unchanged from how it looked in 2003. But then, yeah. So it's like in, in my own experience of joining a cult, and then also in terms of like how does how do extremist organizations like Gamergate or the Islamic State um, in Levant, like how do they recruit people? It's not people who are media illiterate. It's people who are very vulnerable, who are dislocated, who are despairing about their future and don't have good economic circumstances, social circumstances ahead of them. Like it is all about targeting vulnerable people. And right now in Edmonton, uh, we're recording this on February 15th, ironically enough. The city is currently in the throes of a conspiracy theory that Edmonton City Council is going to start geofencing people into 15-minute cities that they can't leave. So it is literally the stupidest conspiracy theory humanly possible. Like Edmonton cannot clear snow off the roads, um, but people believe that we are somehow going to be able to balkanize the city into 15-minute districts and prevent you from leaving. But one of my friends highlighted something to me that was really important, is that when scammers are doing email and phone scams, they will actually frequently make the scams as obvious as humanly possible. And the reason for that is if they try to disguise the scam, they might accidentally waste their time on someone who doesn't realize it's a scam immediately, but has enough skills in detecting scams that later on they realize, oh, this is a scam, and they back out. The thing that they want to do actually is make the scam as obvious as humanly possible so that anyone who falls for the scam in the first 30 seconds is gullible enough to fall for the scam all the way through to the end so they don't waste any money and any time trying to hoodwink people who might possibly figure it out.
0: Well, that's just efficient, yeah.
2: (laughs) Exactly. Conspiracy theories and extremist organizations function on a lot of the same grounds. They are not there trying to like you know, actually do persuasion. They are trying to find the people who have already fallen through the cracks, who are already vulnerable, who, even if they know it's a scam, are so desperate that they are still going to go through with it anyways. That's the tactic. And so like with this 15-minute cities thing, it's such a fantastic grift because anyone who is willing to fall for this, donate to GoFundMe, uh, join up with a rally, join a mailing list, is such an easy mark that they are now going to be a, re- like a really easy frequent flyer, someone who's going to be super easy to fleece. So I think this whole chapter just like doesn't really deal with the fact that conspiracy theories are not about media literacy. They are not about you know, helping people identify scams or identify lies. The real grounding of conspiracy is material conditions. It is 100% about like making people feel like their lives matter, because if their lives don't matter, they will sign on to QAnon. They will strap on a suicide vest. They will, you know, spend their entire lives frothing with anger on the internet over the size of a video game character's tits.
0: Yeah, I, f- I sometimes feel like, you know, everybody has that one thing that they think is the solution. And for me, it's always inequality. But it really truly does seem like every problem in society goes back to inequality in some way. It's either on that one side, people who are more insecure or more vulnerable to being taken advantage of but also on the other side that conspiracy theories have more salience when there's more inequality at the top as well because people know there's a distrustful elite doing all kinds of shady shit and so it's easier to convince people that this specific shady thing might be true you know so
1: it's not like conspiracies aren't real <laughs> you yeah. know it's just how far are you willing to believe and how deep are you willing to go
2: <laughs> we even see this i think in ben scotter's own example so ben scotter is a was a young girl from like a flyover state who got sucked in by the moonies early in her youth and one of the things that really struck me in her story was just that she felt like her life was going nowhere like she felt completely dislocated from her community she didn't really think she had much of a future didn't really know where anything was going. And so along comes a couple people in a van who can say, hey, your life is totally meaningless. We can give it meaning, get in the van. Like it doesn't matter if she was well-versed in knowing that like this was obviously a lie. She was looking for something and they are going to provide it. So unless we are going out there providing material, meaningful lives for people, you know, they will fall into conspiracy. Like I joined a cult when I was 13 because I felt completely dislocated. I, you know, felt like a total loser all the time. And here are these people coming along saying they can give me magical powers. Like, hell yeah. I'm I'm like a sad 13-year-old boy. That sounds great. Let's do it. It doesn't matter to me that like before and after that, I was a committed atheist. Uh, It doesn't matter that I did not believe in magic. Uh, it still offered me a source of power, belonging, and a place that I felt like I had impact and sway. And then, ironically enough, within about six months of joining the cult, the high priestess started an advanced study group on the side that was just pure Hitler worship. And my friends and I were like, worshipping the devil is cool. Worshipping Hitler is not. And we
0: left. (laughs) Drew the line of Hitler. Fair call. (laughs) Uh, Can I ask, like, uh, one of the things that the book says about deprogramming that I actually found really persuasive, but now now that I know you've had personal experience with this, I wonder whether you agree that it's true, um, if it's true or not. But this idea that deprogramming people is most effective when it plays through our inherent desire not to be taken advantage of, did that play a role in your story at all?
2: I don't think so necessarily again because like the circumstances for my de radical like my leaving that cult were probably a little bit unusual i think actually cults having like internal schisms and control for like vying for power is actually one of the ways that it ends up falling apart and unraveling but that's not really something that people have control over but i think that that not wanting to take advantage of also didn't play in when i was like you know later on in my teen years i spent a lot of time on 4chan One of my friends, I lost to like a skinhead street gang. And in all of that, what was really useful for me getting out of that and not falling into that trap uh, was not sort of any kind of literacy around not being taken advantage of. A lot of it was just that I had responsibilities in my day-to-day life, that it's like I could go online at home and be a shithead on 4chan, but then I had to go to high school the next day and I was the captain of the debate team. And I had to, you know be there and I had to be responsible for people. And I had to teach people that I, you know, on 4chan would have been making fun of. And eventually that sort of like responsibilities and having, you know, a bit of agency in my life ended up being far more powerful in terms of getting me to realize, oh, this is all stupid bullshit and turning away from it for good. This also informs my sort of like emphasis on the material realities of people's lives and how vulnerable they are to like cults and extremism is that I think Even if I had known that, oh, yeah, these people are taking advantage of me, you know, maybe like I was a debater, I was pretty good at evaluating arguments. I think oftentimes I probably knew deep down that this stuff was bullshit, but it was actually like having a material reason to be like, okay, I have to stop.
1: Well, it's that sense of belonging, right? It's that sense of belonging that cults give. And there's a reason that, like, so many of them love bomb as soon as they they get somebody in there. It's like, you're welcome here. You belong here. This is your space. And if we live in a divided world where nobody has any community, then it's easier to fall into the trap of maybe QAnon, where it gives you purpose and meaning and people you can talk to every day.
2: In terms of this sort of, like, idea of dislocation, I also recently watched This Place Rules Uh, A movie by Andrew Callahan, where he kind of goes across America doing gonzo journalism. So interviewing the like weirdest and craziest people that he can find um, specifically around Trump's election loss in 2022 and sort of the lead up to the January 6th riot at Capitol Hill. And one of the families that he integrates himself with is this like QAnon family in sort of like rural rural somewhere. It was just like fascinating to see into these people's lives and like, yeah, how lonely and isolating it was, not only as sort of like the before, but also as soon as they join into QAnon, that it just like consumes the life of this entire family. There's a brief shot where you like see their computer room and there's five people in this family. And I think I counted like 14 computer screens in that room. He follows up with them again after the election and after like Trump convincingly loses. And, uh, you know, the great storm never happens. And this family does manage to just be like, oh, we were lied to and they quit. And there's this very brief moment where one of the children is just like, you know what, I'm kind of glad that, you know, it turns out that QAnon was false, because like, I felt like I was losing my dad. Like, he would only talk about QAnon stuff and just like wander off uh, and just like be completely absorbed in his phone." And so, yeah, it's like there is a lot of the sense that it's like, you know, if people have communities and they have ties and responsibilities outside of themselves, it's really hard to get like lost in these conspiracy theories. But as soon as you're like isolated, especially because so much of these conspiracies make you so hostile to other people and really prey on this idea that you're like, oh, the world hates you um, because they're all in on it. It just becomes like a, a spiral downhill into total isolation. So for me, it's a lot of like, what is the vaccine against conspiracy theories? Uh, it's strong communities and people who are not desperate. There was um, a little parallel to the Conquest of Bread, which is a book by uh, Kropotkin. And one of the, the questions that the book tries to tackle with like tries to tackle is, so you've created your beautiful anarcho-communist utopia. Um, but a capitalist from abroad comes along and offers high wages for people to go and work in his factory. And the response from Kropotkin is simply that, you know, we, the only reason why people go and work in factories and work in wage labor is because otherwise they starve to death. That the process of enclosure within our societies has meant that unless you work for the capitalists, you die. And so, you know, the parallel that I created here is that there's kind of been like almost an enclosure of our minds. So basically, the idea that Kropotkin proposes, though, is that as if everyone in your anarcho-communist utopias needs are taken care of, they're not going to be persuaded by the capitalist, Um, that they'll be able to say, well, I don't need the wages. Why would I go work in your factory for your profit when everything that I need, I already have access to? It's this idea that if you address scarcity within your society, people are less desperate, they're less vulnerable. And so you know, they won't fall for tricks. They won't betray you. Um, There's a certain degree of sort of like loyalty and community that gets built up. And I feel like a lot of when this book is talking about how do we vaccinate people against conspiracies, you know, addressing their material desperation and their isolation and alienation from their communities, that's the actual vaccination against conspiracy theories. It's not media literacy. It's not equipping people with skills and tools. It's saying you are alone, you are scared, Here's how we can help
0: yeah I agree I think inequality is the number one problem <laughs> it solves so many so, so many more issues if uh, we had a more robust welfare state and if there were no billionaires but and to be fair deep
2: canvassing is one of the ways that we get there that like one of the things that we need to be doing is building coalitions around uh, inequality and actually you know creating a de- like a desire and a political movement that is completely unstoppable to address income inequality and create a fairer, better society.
1: And I would also say that media literacy is not a terrible skill to be teaching kids in school. And this book <laughs> isn't wrong to be mentioning that. Although, yes, they do miss the bigger point, which is desperate people are vulnerable and more likely to be taken in by stuff. So,
0: you know, let's take care of that. Also, I think this book is, it's more for organizers and like people in political parties than it is for regular people. So I think having some, you know, the the Shankar Arsario chapter gives a lot of really useful takeaways that are maybe not new, but really punchily packed together.
2: Yeah, this is definitely like an inside baseball book. This is kind of like trying to provide some corrections for political wonks. <laughs> and I think it's great for doing that.
1: I think it's really good uh, just as a general read. I wouldn't have picked it up myself because I'm I'm a peasant, but <laughs> but
0: I'm not sorry that I read it.
1: I gave it five stars on Goodreads.
0: I would also pick it up if, like me, you are watching The Last of Us and you're starting to think to yourself, Gee, isn't it a little scary how the dystopias that are out now seem to be more about processing what happens when you tumble towards a dystopia more so than what would happen if there was a dystopia. And that somehow is like way more scary and real. This book (laughs) made me feel a little better about our prospects of success. So definitely recommend.
1: Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll catch you on the next episode.